with history, you get a more capacious view. And in some respects, some questions, especially the big questions that a lot of the, the book tackles, big questions having to do with capitalism, what, what it is, how does it work? It's a capacious view that has its own advantages. I think you can get more insight through it. I'm Bethany McLean. Did you ever have a moment of doubt about capitalism and whether greed's a good idea? And I'm Luigi Zingales. We have socialism for the very rich, rugged individualism for the poor. And this is Capital Isn't, a podcast about what is working in capitalism. First of all, tell me, is there some society you know that doesn't run on greed? And most importantly, what isn't? We ought to do better by the people that get left behind. I don't think we should have killed the capital system in the process. In our podcast, we tend to discuss capitalism and the pluses and the minuses on a day-by-day basis. Sometimes it's useful to take a longer historical perspective. And we're very fortunate that uh, one of my colleagues here at the University of Chicago in the history department has just written a book called The Ages of American Capitalists that provides a history of the evolution of capitalism in America from the colonial time to today. And part of his analysis addresses one of my key sticking points, which is that the study of economics is too often mathematical and reduced to models, particularly today. And so, in my view, bringing in the perspective of a historian who has thought about this in different terms, in the language of words and history rather than the language of numbers and models, is a valuable added perspective. So, Jonathan, I loved your book, and I was struck by a quote right at the beginning, which was this. Today, mainstream economy follows a path of great mathematical rigor that does not make room for other accounts of economic life, including historical accounts. And you've attempted to do something very different in this book. And I was hoping to start with the question of of why. Why did you take such a different path in terms of trying to weave in historical accounts to explain what's going on, economically speaking? Achieving rigor, at least one kind of rigor, often through the use of mathematics, sacrifices other virtues, uh, other intellectual qualities. So oftentimes to achieve rigor in that way, you have to to narrow the scope of of inquiry and and treat the economy as a relatively restricted subject, whether emphasizing things like rationality or incentives or, or markets. I think the economy is a much bigger subject matter. If we think about economic life in the broadest sense, there's other issues, other subjects uh, that need to be integrated into an account of whatever the economy is. But I think with history, you get a more capacious view. And in some respects, some questions, especially the big questions that a lot of the, the book tackles, big questions having to do with capitalism, what, what it is, how does it work? It's a capacious view that has its own advantages. I think you can get more insight through it. I completely agree. One of my favorite line is you can say nothing precisely or precisely nothing. Much of economics uh, these days is into precisely nothing. But I want to actually follow your path to try to get the big waves that are in the history. And this is a, I think that the big advantage of writing in history so long is that you can see some uh, very long uh, swings. And one of the swings is this tension between kind of a plutocracy system and a populist system that goes back and forth. You start with Hamilton. Actually, let's uh, demolish Hamilton because Hamilton, thanks to Miranda, has become this uh, idol of the masses. But in fact, was the worst form of capitalist pig who uh, took advantage of consolidation to make money. And he he basically started the, the way in which you have very powerful government that uh, makes the interest of a very small group of people. 
And then you have the Andrew Jackson revolution that you seem to be relatively sympathetic to. And so, of course, we all know that he did terrible things with uh, Native American and, and so on and so forth. So we're not trying to give a complete sort of positive view. But I think that I would like you to sort of, uh, I can continue, but I would like you to, to discuss this. This is a swings in the American uh, uh, history. Yeah, but you started with Hamilton. I mean, I, that's a, a moment in which politics doesn't distinguish between say, public interest and private interest. So I think it's I think what you said is fair to describe a lot of what Hamilton did as corrupt. He benefited personally. A lot of his friends, fellow politicians, benefited personally from some of the policies that were employed. But they don't really see it that way. They see public and private as always being enmeshed. The kind of view you espouse, I think, is a kind of Jacksonian view, that we have to keep politics and markets, at least to some degree, separate. Uh, otherwise, one will, will corrupt the other. So those, those two modes, I don't know if they're waves. I suppose they are. I haven't thought about it that way. But those two modes that public and private are always going to interact, let's get the interactions correct, versus public and private need to be separated to prevent corruption, like those two political styles are always present in American history. And you're right, they do wax and wane. Uh, they do compete. You know, which one you prefer, I think, depends upon your sensibilities and your own political preferences. Did you come away with a sense of which one you prefer? <laughs> No. <laughs> I mean, as a historian, I try to figure it out. I try to, I try to take my own you know, opinions out of the matter. And so I think I see it more as a tension that has to be balanced than perhaps you know, choosing one, one or the other. But you know, our politics aren't necessarily organized or, uh, you know, around resolving that tension. Oftentimes, our politics have to do with exacerbating that tension. Or exploiting that tension. Exploiting, yeah, yeah, yeah. What I see you saying is... Uh, there are important complementarities in investment. So if I invest alone, I can't really make a, a good return and a big difference. But if we all invest at the same time, actually, this can be transformational. That's what uh, we economists uh, would call complementarity. And so here, when there is complementarity, there can be three things that trigger complementarity. One is some state intervention. Two, other factors that drive uh, investment. So Probably people did not cross the Atlantic only to have uh, a better living, uh, at least the one who came voluntarily. They came here for something else that was a big factor into the investment. And, and the third one, ironically, is bubbles. Think about one bubble we all experienced, which was the one of the late 90s, uh, was definitely, uh, at least with the benefit inside a bubble, but uh, was crucial in advancing some technology and bringing a new level of technological advancement that we didn't have before. So how much do you buy into my interpretation of your book and, and uh, to what extent uh, I'm missing important elements? So I like your interpretation. So I mean, as you suggest, that investment as a critical factor um, and the account of investment is the heart of the book and the relationship between politics and investment is at the heart of the book. I would maybe state one thing first before I address your three complementaries, which, which I liked, which is the, the way that liquidity preference and, and Keynes' theory of liquidity preference uh, sets the scene for the book. So, you know, what Keynes suggested is actually owners of wealth don't like to part with liquidity to bear the, the risk of investment and instead save or, or hoard or invest in liquid assets, even for speculative purposes. So, so the norm, right, um, is that we should see basically rentier capitalism. Uh, we shouldn't see a very high rate of investment. We should actually see a very weak rate of investment. I think on balance, since roughly the 1980s, the investment regime we've had, very speculative, uh, 
very short term, not very productive, very high level of liquidity preference, preference for holding speculative assets in a financial sector that specializes in creating fresh supplies of liquid assets uh, to hold and to profit from. And so in that respect, I think the 1990s is uh, kind of been the exception to the rule in our era. Are these factors that drive these periods where people, where investors aren't misers, where, where, where they choose to invest? It read to me as if it was an accumulation of small factors, not a series of choices by policymakers, but an accumulation of things in society and in politics that cause these phases. And I thought if we're trapped in one of these in one of these phases now, maybe trapped is the wrong word, but as Keynes wrote, there has been a chronic tendency throughout human history for the propensity to save to be stronger than the inducement to invest. The weakness of the inducement to invest has been at all times the key to the economic problem. And if that's where we are today, is there a solution for it? Or does the solution for it come from a series of factors that can't be predicted or manip manipulated because they're too multifaceted? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I think the good news is yes, you know, it, it can be done. And, and when it was done, those are the major turning points in American economic history and the major turning points in the book. You know, for many years, the abolition of slavery was, was thought to be so dramatic and revolutionary as to be impossible. You know, it happened without compensation in the, in the United States. Likewise, the, the New Deal is a, um, a moment of transformation, a moment of rupture that creates a kind of new patterns of expectations around investment and moves capital into different directions. And then finally, you know, I, I said around the Volcker shock rather than the election of Reagan, but like 1980 is another moment where you see uh, another rupture. It's possible uh, that we're living through such, such a rupture today. We'll see. I think you're right that if you want to understand these dynamics historically, you have to have a very multifaceted explanation to the point where you wonder what is the kind of causal variable that could actually drive the system. With that said, I would point to the state um, and to politics you know, as really being the central actor on the scene that can determine new patterns of investment. But you seem to blame, and maybe I, I mischaracterize you, uh, so feel free to disagree, but you seem to blame capitalists for this uh, short-term liquidity preference. I would put the other way around. I think that I see the liquidity preference as part of human nature, and actually capitalists as the first system that tries to overcome that by providing different way to save. And that maybe, as you said, sometimes there is a need of a nudge from the point of view of the government. Uh, sometimes, unfortunately, this nudge comes from wars. But the moment we want to maintain uh, freedom, we have to cope with the, the fact that uh, people do have a preference for liquidity. I don't think is is anything bad about that. Just to underscore one of the points you made about being war, war is being really central to these shifts. Of course, wars are awful destructive events. So that, that it's hardly, you know, should we hope that we don't have to live through another world war before we see a, uh, a rupture, a discontinuity in moving capitalism in the direction that we would like? First, you're right that a capitalist financial system does have ways of mobilizing savings into productive investment that pre-capitalist systems didn't have. With that said, I think extreme liquidity preference is irrational. I mean, I think the desire to keep all investment, all speculative investment options open immediate entry and exit into uh, any and all asset class, I think that does undermine for the economy as a whole uh, long-term productive investment. You know, we could debate that, but that's a kind of position that, um, you know, that I put in the book to get out there. And then finally, on the politics of this, 
you know, it goes back to our, our first point of you know, if you agree with the argument uh, that the state has to be involved uh, because of the weakness of the inducement to invest, there's lots of different ways to do that. The way the U.S. has tried to do it is through tax incentives in the tax code. Tax cuts often being presented, you know, Trump did this, Reagan did this, didn't work, or tax rebates, tax incentives. That's mostly the way the U.S. state has tried to shift uh, both the composition of investment and the rate of investment. I don't think it's been very successful if you look at the historical record. And that poses the question of perhaps other mechanisms, public-private mixed mechanisms being discussed today in terms of uh, green energy or potential programs for investments having to do with, with climate change. So I, I think that is one place where something like the Hamiltonian tradition of public and private could get you a new regime of investment that would have more public dimensions uh, that could triumph over liquidity preference that might still have scope and, f and, and room for uh, a very large role for, for private investment. Let me try a, a, another possible reading of your book and see if you and see if you agree with this, but that plays off what you just said, which is that I actually thought your book does offer a way to bridge some of our dysfunction, some of our current split in ways of thinking about the the economy, and that you do have, in very simplistic terms, on this one hand, these very hardcore group of people who say the free market must rule, and on the other hand, this group of people who say no, the government must determine what what we do, and I think part of the compelling argument in your book is that there never has been a time where the free market, uh, where free market existed apart, apart from some form of government rules. And you even have a great quote from Adam Smith, that supposed father of, 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 of the free market, that he, that he theoretically thinks about what the free market would look like in the absence of the state. But it was only an intellectual argument because he knew state, state policies mattered. And so I thought perhaps that a broader reading of your book also offers a middle way forward in which we all accept that state policies, that state State policies have to have a role. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me, certainly. <laughs> you know, you 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 quoted Smith. I mean, I think that what you what one could say about Smith, you can say about general equilibrium economics. It's a thought exercise uh, that establishes its own limits. It, it's just that, and it's a helpful thought exercise. But it, it can't be taken as a description of the world we live in as such. And I think you could say the same thing on the opposite end of the of the spectrum of, of people who say, you know, the state, the state, the state. The problem with that kind of more middle path is it's very messy. Um, there's no neat and tidy theory of it. It means you have to write a very long book if you want to give an account of that sort of messiness and the richness of that messiness. And it means when you enter the realm of policy, um, the things are complex. It often means you have to go case by case and you don't have a covering explanation for every single phenomenon that you'd like to understand. So really we're talking about an integration problem right, of how you integrate markets uh, with the government, uh, how you integrate the state with the, with the economy. And, and that's a never-ending process, right? It never ends. We're always kind of working on it uh, through, hopefully, democratic processes that recognize our fundamental political and economic values that we all share. So that, that to me, is the ideal, right? Not a kind of final statement that one can make about, you know, what it would mean to get any of these matters right for once and for all time. But I think we all agree the state has a role in uh, putting rules and also in ensuring there is competition. Not every economist agree, but I think that the three of us probably agree on that. Where 
The question is, is what is the role of the state in uh, what is called uh, today industrial policy? You seem to suggest that the state should have an important role in industrial policy. The question I, I have is, is twofold. Number one, to what extent this ends up being a success? Number two, to what extent we avoid the corruption of the Hamiltonian state? Because uh, every time you give who is in power the ability to spend a lot of money, inevitably that money will go to his friends or her friends. Historically, they're mostly his friends. And uh, also entrench himself politically. The three of us live in the city of Chicago, and Chicago is kind of a developing country from a political point of view because there was, and maybe there still is, the daily machine that is intrinsically corrupt. There's no alternative. And this is the last Republican mayor, I think, is more than 100 years ago. And uh, the city doesn't work well and, and so on and so forth. So if you look in a, in a microcosm, uh, this uh, power of the state doesn't seem to be doing so well. Yeah, I mean, those critiques obviously resonate. I, I mean, I guess you, you mentioned industrial policy. I mean, this is kind of, do we have industrial policy in the United States today? Well, not to the extent that uh, other states certainly have tried to encourage kind of manufacturing export-led economic development and have designed all kinds of economic policies we don't think of quantitative easing or kind of asset purchases by the central bank as being a kind of industrial policy. But, but of course it is, right? I mean, the, the effects of that policy have you know, dramatic consequences uh, for the U.S. economy and dramatic consequences for the economic fate of a city like Chicago in terms of how it affects real estate markets, how it affects a variety of different asset markets and also industrial employment and jobs. So, so, so once again, I think we're stuck with the best policies that would get us the economy we'd like to have, which I agree would have the least amount of nefarious corruption as possible, you know, as opposed to a kind of either or. I, I often think we have a naive let's pretend policy in, in the U.S. where we pretend that it's the free market that is dictating the outcome, the quote free market, since I'm not sure such a thing actually exists. But in reality, what's dictating the outcome are specific policies that we put in place. So, for example, our hospital sector, which has allowed been allowed to become a completely disorganized, chaotic mess in which we pretend operates according to the principles of the free market with for-profit hospital chains, but in reality is a system where hospital chains have, have, since the beginning of Medicare and Medicaid, made money off gaming the rules that the government that the government has put in place. Or the same is often true of our energy sector. We have no energy policy because we like to pretend it's the free market, when in reality it's America that had a law against exporting oil um, dating back to the 1970s, and that was obviously a government policy, uh, sort of negating the concept that there was that we were allowing the free market to flourish. Well, yeah, I mean, I have two reactions to that. First. I'd love the hospital point. Our hospital system is, is defined by all kinds of networks of for-profit and non-profit, right? And also state uh, funding mechanisms and organizational structures. So it's an extraordinary complex assemblage that can't be reduced to inside the market or outside the market, right? Second, you know, a lot of historians have thought that in the 20th century, the best thing that happened for capitalism was communism, a great communist historian, Eric Hobsbawm, made this point that we could explain the kind of post-war, post-World War II social democratic glory age uh, as capitalism being forced to respond to the challenge of, of communism and to humanize itself, the expansion of the, of the welfare state. 
uh, being being the leading example. But sometimes I think that's wrong, and that especially in the United States, the Cold War just had horrible effects for American political discourse. The invention of the phrase free enterprise, right, the free market, came from Cold War critics of, of communism, and I think rhetorically locked American politics into the kind of game that you're suggesting we should stop playing, which is the kind of free market or not. That kind of act as if it's in the free market was a rhetorical device that was part of anti-communism. And, you know, what are we now, 30 years after the fall of the, of the Berlin Wall, like maybe it's time to, to, to not talk that way <laughs> about, about economic questions and, and to develop more, more nuanced and sophisticated, um, you know, ways of doing it. I mean, you know, hoping for more nuanced and sophistication in our political debates probably. <laughs> it's probably, it's probably just that a hope, but nonetheless, we can always hope. And so <laughs> if you are at a turning point, what do you see around the corner? Okay. What's new to our period, roughly since the 1970s, is fiat money. And, you know, before the 1970s, um, there's a hard metallic standard. It creates a hard limit to the supply of money. Going back on the gold standard after wars was always a way to, to tighten money uh, and to bring about a period of deflation. Since since The 1970s, going off of the gold standard in 1973, eh, we're still in a kind of trial and error phase here with, with monetary policy. Exactly how monetary authorities should control the quantity of money, if they can control the quantity of money, especially as we move into digital currencies. These are open, uncertain questions. I don't have a prediction there so much as to kind of frame the, the novelty of the moment. And as we move into what looks like the repetition of a past cycle, that we do it in very different conditions than, than what occurred in the past. One quibble I have with, with your book is, imagine for a second that this is the only book that survives a destruction of civilization, some, some future civilization, maybe some Martians. Read your book. My view, and I might be wrong, and I would love to hear also what uh, Bethany thinks about this, but my view is that the Martian reading this will not come away with the successes of this period. And since I go roughly, but in the period of your book, life expectancy double, per capita income was probably 30 times as big as it was in the beginning. The United States were able to accept what? Over history, I go roughly 100 million people from all over the world and transform it into more or less a vibrant democracy, maybe at least less vibrant today than in the past. Of course, there are a lot of negatives. And I think that in this podcast, we go through all that regularly. But sometimes we, uh, I've, I'm afraid we miss the forest from the tree. So I think that's I think that's fair. I mean, I do have to say, I, I never imagined that it'd be the only book left <laughs> on earth. And I think that most of the, you know, the books that try to tell a sweeping, you know, economic history of the United States um, tend to be too triumphalist for my taste, maybe for your taste too. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. No, no, I completely agree. And so that's agree. how I thought of it. But I guess, you know, the other thing I would say is, you know, I started writing this book after 2008. You know, the, the book came from a, a moment in which, you know, many people, myself included, were reevaluating capitalism. I think we're troubled with a lot of the tendencies and trends we've, we've seen in the American economy really since the 1980s, I think, I argue in the book. 
certainly since since 2000. I mean, you know, the, the chapters in the book, certainly the, the chapters in the book uh, that cover uh, the 2000s up to the Great Recession are, are, are pretty depressing. They're pretty depressing to write. Um, and I don't think it's been a very happy story the last few decades. And so for that reason, you know, the perspective, I think you're quite right to suggest, um, you know, is critical. One thing I, I found strange is that you have the last phase of American capitalism, the cow, starting in 1980 and continuing today. My choice would have been uh, to stop exactly in 2008 and call the age between uh, uh, 1980 and 2008 the age of finance. It's not as chaotic as the world we're in today after the great financial crisis. And, and I think that the great financial crisis is a turning point that is much bigger than, than anything else we've seen nearby. Well, so there, I think we disagree, although this is, this is you know, definitely in the category of too soon to tell. I, I think there's a lot of continuity across 2008. And I think COVID, I think this moment, once again, too early to tell, uh, stands to be much, much more so of a rupture. When we talk about these deflation, inflation, you know, cycles, I really see continuity across the 2008 period. There's a lot of continuity, you're right, but there's continuity more out of uh, inertia than uh, out of the people believing. And of course, there are the seeds of, of change. Now, you can say the same about the late 70s. In, the, in your book, you're very clear about saying that you can see the seeds of Reaganism and free markets in the late part of the Carter administration. So I think that uh, it's, it's never uh, such a discontinuity, but I think that you can, you can see it both ways. And, and I think the sense since 2008 has been kind of crisis as the norm and, and just muddling, muddling through. Thank you. I thought that was fascinating and I loved your... I enjoyed it. Thank you. So. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, hopefully you didn't take it. And if you want, we can take it out at the beginning But the, of my favorite sentence. When I say nothing precisely, I'm in that category among economists. So oh, saying no, nothing precisely. Because, no, because uh, it, the precision comes at the cost of being irrelevant. And, and I think that I see actually a, 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 an advantage of saying nothing precisely because at least you can say something. <laughs> No, I mean, I enjoyed this conversation because you imagine when I present this book to historians, like this guy, you know, understandably, you know, someone who spent their entire life, you know, in the 1830s and they just sort of read these two paragraphs and they're just so mad, you know. Yeah, of uh, course, because you didn't quote <laughs> yeah, uh, this yeah, nice statistic. That's yeah, not right. And it's like, yeah, well, that, that's the reason why I stay away from that, <laughs> even on the part of uh, the stuff yeah. that is more recent. So I, yeah. I know something. Of yeah. course, I know nothing about. Actually, <laughs> let, let me ask this because uh, I was curious because I am uh, listening to a lot of places where they are even rethinking the founding father, the constitution, etc. And yeah. one in particular was saying that really the American Revolution was driven by people like George Washington who wanted to do uh, land speculation. And to have land speculation, you need to take money, to take land from the natives. And the British did not want to do that, not because they love the natives, just simply because they didn't want to have war attention. And so that was part of the tension. Is there any basis for that? Or is yeah, just that's, a- that's, that's, part, that's part of the story. I mean, the British, you know, they, 1763, they passed this law saying you can't, the limiting expansion westward. And a lot of those guys were, were land speculators and they, they didn't like that. I mean, you can't, you know, it's it's like slavery. There's lots of debates now about slavery as the cause of the American Revolution. I mean, it's, it's present. They know it. They're thinking of it. You know, is that alone the cause of the revolution? No. You know, I think that that would be a uh, that would be a crazy, you know, that'd be a crazy thing to say. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. Was okay. Lovely. All right. Thank you. Bye bye. My view is 
that the book really lacks a bit of a big theme. It's just, the, the biggest theme he has is this, uh, the fact that there is too little investments in general because there is this liquidity preference of people. This might be my approach as an economist, but I take the liquidity preference as uh, a preference of individuals in which I don't discuss very much. And it's, just, it's a constraint I have to deal because people don't want to, they might have some liquidity shocks and they might want to be able to withdraw the money. This has nothing to do with capitalism, it has to do with human nature. And in fact, if anything, capitalism help overcome this problem because uh, a lot of what finance is about is transforming assets that are long-term into instruments that are short-term. Think about banking. You lend uh, long-term and you have liabilities that are very short-term so that people feel that they can withdraw the money at whenever they need while the investment is investment in the long-term. So I see capitalists as addressing that. Now, he might be saying that if you have uh, the government doing all this work and all this investment and the savings, then you don't need to pay a liquidity premium. But then there are a lot of other problem with the uh, central planning that he doesn't discuss. So I see the book as criticizing a lot the, the American capitalists, but not providing any fix or any alternatives. It's just what, is, what do we do after that? What, what is the, suppose you buy everything he says in the book. Then? This is the problem, Luigi. Historians and journalists like to criticize. We like to look at the past and say, see all the things you guys did wrong? You economists are in charge of finding the future and the solution. You're just too solution-oriented. That's your problem. <laughs> it's probably true. Probably true. The part that I thought was missing is the embedding of the U.S. economy in the international economy, which I understand this was a history of the United States, so you cannot do the history of the world, but it's very difficult to explain the last uh, 40 years without explaining what happens outside of the United States. And he likes to reduce uh, all of it into some internal fight and very left and right, but the rise of China and the capitalistization of China, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the opening up of uh, basically the rest of the world to the capitalist economy. And so the emission of billions of educated people into the market economy did bring, in my view, enormous imbalances in the United States. Uh, my, my view of the world is that the so-called uh, glorious 30s or whatever, the period after World War II that everybody now miss because there was uh, equality, growth, and uh, you name it, is in part the result of the fact that uh, the United States were an island in uh, a sea of chaos, uh, so that uh, uh, you couldn't possibly invest uh, in France because you were afraid that uh, the factory would be taken over by the commie. Imagine in, uh, in places like Vietnam and Cambodia, and today you can safely invest in Vietnam and Cambodia, and uh, as a result, American workers in the past did not compete with French workers, now they compete with the Cambodian workers. And, and so I think that that has changed the, the equation in a dramatic way. And uh, I, don't, I didn't see that, that serious discussion there. I think that's fair, although I think that isn't in some ways what he set out to do. And you can criticize the book for being incomplete, but it would have been another 500 pages had he done that as well. right? But it also is on a less positive note. Well, it's, it has not been positive for U.S. workers in some ways. But I also think that the whole, the whole move of U.S. investment banks to London and the way in which European banking and U became a copycat version in some ways of, of U.S. banking, it's partly why the collapse, maybe that's too strong a word, but the clear revelation of problems in the U.S. financialization of the world that was the global financial crisis um, has caused such a crisis of confidence everywhere. If the U.S. model hadn't hadn't spread so much, then perhaps it would it, it it wouldn't be the it wouldn't be the crack in the facade of the United States that it is. Do you agree with that? So, 
he's right in pointing out the role of the so-called euro dollar in uh, opening up the financial system. So in the first 30 years after World War II, the international financial system was not working very aggressively. And there was not really a free capital movement everywhere. And, and I think that the creation of a euro dollar market in London, which was designed by the British to compete with the American financial market, was the beginning of the creation of an international capital flow that clearly changed dramatically the ability of individual governments to run their own policies because uh, before we're pretty much unconstrained by capital movements and today they are massively constrained by capital movements especially in a small and medium-sized country now if you are a large country that might be a different story but uh, in small country that's certainly the case so i think in that respect he's right what what is interesting is the spillover of the financial crisis, the 2008 financial crisis, there was a direct spillover of sort of uh, German banks who invested in the US uh, mortgage market and lost their shirt. That's one spillover. But I think the biggest spillover was a fear everywhere because you have a contraction in uh, world trade, which is very dramatic and is not simply justified by how much money Germany lost in, in uh, or German banks lost in the mortgage market it was more like a, a contraction due to fear in that sense uh, in that sense you're right yeah although I've always thought the spillover is as much as I've said before as much social as it is financial in that it it up until this is too too broad um, terms but up until the 2008 financial crisis we all believed and the rest of the world believed that the big American banks had it together and understood what they were doing and now we all know that that's that that's not true and I think that that marks a pretty dramatic change in the world um uh, um, that is still filtering its way through all of our systems. Oh, you're, you're right. And to, to give uh, credit where it's due, I think John makes this point by, by saying, and this is echoing Keynes, but they say that animal spirits play a, a very important role in these fluctuations. And, uh, and I think that we economists tend to uh, be more reluctant to embrace animal spirits because they're not, quote-unquote, rational, and so they're more difficult to model formally. But I think that they do play a very important role in the, uh, the ups and downs, in the big cycles of, of uh, not only the U.S. economy, but the world economy. So I wanted to go back to this notion of, of the miser. I thought this quote was fascinating because I think it sums up a lot about where the American economy has been for, for a while, which is this chronic tendency throughout human history for the propensity to save to be stronger than the inducement to invest. The weakness of the inducement to invest has been at all times the key to the economic problem. Is he, is he right that this is not a well-known part of Keynes or is this better known than he posits in his book? So the fact that there is a fundamental underinvestment problem, that's straight Keynes. The fact that this inducement might be necessarily lower or higher, Keynes recognized that there are animal spirits. And so if the expectations are that uh, there is not uh, a great future for the investments, even if you have low interest rates, people are not going to invest very aggressively. That's uh, the so-called liquidity trap that resembles very much of what the West uh, now and Japan uh, since the, the late 90s uh, is about, is, is sort of a, a world in which the, the savings exceeds the investment. Now, one aspect that he does not emphasize in his book, but I think is super important, is the demographic aspect, is the fact that people tend to save mostly between their 40s and their their 60s because uh, before they are too poor to save and later they retire and so when you start to hit 40s you start to see your retirement 25 you don't but at 40 you start to see your retirement and then you start to save so when the baby boom generation hits that age you see a, an enormous amount of savings in uh, in most countries 
if uh, the, the generation coming later is not as uh, numerous, then the need for investments are not so high. So Japan got into this uh, situation a long time ago and is still struggling because the need for investments are not as big as uh, the need to save for retirement. And that creates a, a, a disproportion. The West in general is fast approaching that situation. And in the next 20 years, China will approach that situation thanks to the one-child policy that they introduced. So that they will face uh, this issue in space. So do you think that economists will read this book and see that there's something brought to the study of economics by layering in the study of history that economics and its mathematical models doesn't get at? Or do you think his aim was too grandiose and that most economists will, will dismiss it as either not analytical enough or not solution-oriented? enough. I think this is a, a great book for graduate students to read. So to have a broader perspective. So I think that w when I did my PhD, there was still a, a, a mandate at MIT to take a economic history class. But in many programs these days, there is no class, mandatory class in economic history. You do it at your own risk or your own peril because you lose this uh, longer term perspective. So this book is very helpful to to provide this long-term perspective. And, and I think that it's an ideal uh, text for a graduate student because it's uh, rich enough that you can learn a lot and, uh, in my view, unfinished enough that you can get a lot of ideas to finish it. Why did that change? Why did um, graduate economics classes get rid of the requirement to study history? You would, you would think that in an increasingly diverse world and one where we all get the multiple, multidisciplinary nature of most, um, of most fields, that you would be adding that sort of thing rather than taking it out. Part of it is that graduate school, at least in terms of courses, still lasts two years and the field has exploded in terms of production of stuff. So if you want to teach more stuff, at some point you have to give something up. But the second is that uh, the field of economics is becoming increasingly formalized. While uh, now even economic history is, is more formalized, it tends to be less, uh, less formalized than the rest and so generally ends up being ignored or, or at least not put in the same uh, role. And also... This is what happens when you start to become old. But there is a, a range of a period that is in between what you study in history and uh, what you have lived in first person. And uh, that's generally the part you don't know that well. And, and it's quite important, actually, because uh, all the, the peers that go from World War II to, in my case, the 70s, for other people would be the 80s, is stuff that you generally don't, don't study in any economic history because it's too recent to be a, a, a history. But you don't remember and it's quite important in shaping the present. If you're enjoying the discussions Luigi and I are having on this show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show you should also check out. It's called Big Brains. Big Brains brings you the stories behind the pivotal breakthroughs that are reshaping our world. Change how you see the world and keep up with the latest academic thinking with Big Brains, part of the University of Chicago podcast network. So, so what are we doing of capitalism or capitalism? What about the famous um, Biden package at 1.65 or 4, uh, whatever trillion? The basic infrastructure bill is way overdue and is non-controversial. For the rest, Popuri is a combination of uh, a lot of uh, spending programs that some of them we might, I, I might agree, some of them I might not. I don't know exactly what we have to do with uh, relaunching the economy. Is And now that is the only thing we need to do, but... Uh, I think it's a lot more redistributing and redistributing to 
democratic voters, not necessarily to poor, but to democratic voters than anything else. I'm, I'm a fan of the infrastructure aspects of the bill, but there are things that I think that have happened in this whole negotiation process that prove or at least reinforce the notion that we have become a crony capitalist state. And one of those to me is that lobbyists shielded carried interest from Biden's tax hikes. Tax hikes. I just, I, I don't understand that. I don't understand how you come into office as the Biden administration and continue to reward the, the wealthiest people in, in, in the country for an activity, in my view, that does not do a lot to foster either job growth or real economic development. Actually, you're absolutely right, Bethany. And let me add the failure to modify the so-called step-up base. The lobbyists have very aggressively say you don't want to tax the uh, poor farmers who see the value of their property go up. But uh, uh, the exemption now was set at $2 million. So uh, if you are a small farmer with more than $2 million in assets, then you're not such a small farmer. And the failure to basically tax capital gains at the moment of inheritance is uh, pretty abysmal. To me, the carried interest tax has the potential to become the Boston Tea Party, right? Carried interest as, as tea bags. But it really is. That's the sort of thing that fosters a revolution. I mean, people look at this and see what's happened. And it is so obvious and so clear cut and so utterly depressing that... Uh, I, I, I can't say strongly enough how, how upsetting I think it is and how much it proves the, that crony capitalism continues even in this new regime. Actually, we should t make a bet of uh, which one is worse in terms of revenue lost. Ah, you know what? I am so upset about the um, theory of it that I don't actually know. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> I'm supposed to be a numbers person and I haven't even thought this through. But I'm so upset about the social repercussions that I haven't actually even thought to look at the numbers and seen which one is a bigger deal. Perhaps I'm complaining about something that in the scheme of your complaint is small potatoes. <laughs> I think mine is bigger, but uh, we, we need to to make a bet and then see what uh, which one is it. We'll give a special prize to the first listener to let us know which one is bigger. <laughs> Luigi and I will figure out what that special prize is. You may not want it, but we'll come up with something. <laughs> what would be, a if you were going to pass one policy that would help poor people the most, what would it be? I think that uh, some form of universal health care, I think, would be a necessary step. There is too much anxiety. It also impacts tremendously the allocation of jobs in a sense you're concerned about where you can get an healthcare rather than what is the best job you can do the the matching between healthcare and employment is a leftover of the past and is completely absurd. I think we have to stop having policies that contradict each other. For instance, the Federal Reserve's ultra-low interest rate policy of the last decade has been predicated mainly on reducing the unemployment rate. But at the very same time, that ultra-low interest rate policy has helped foster an explosion in private equity. I saw a recent piece of analysis that uh, most of the retail chains that have gone bankrupt in the past decade have been private equity backed, and it's come at the cost of something like a half a million jobs. And so if you're going to have a policy that is predicated explicitly on increasing employment, but is actually in some ways helping to do exactly the opposite. Um, um, that's that's that, that's a problem, and it makes me wonder who we're actually trying to help. We have to do the great private equity. No, no, we can do we can do it. I don't know why why sort of Bethany hates private equity so much. Uh, but um, you just don't know why anyone hates. Anytime anyone brings it up, you're confused. I see it as I see it as everything that's wrong with everything. It's, it's become my it's become my monster under the bed.
Capital Isn't is a podcast from the University of Chicago Stiegler Center in collaboration with the Chicago Booth Review. Also check out promarket.org, a publication of the Stiegler Center. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to Capital Isn't wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.